0: At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com
1: welcome to healthcare americana coming to you from the freedom doc studios i am your host christopher habick ceo and co-founder of freedom health works this is a podcast for the 99 percent of people who get care in america we talk to innovative clinicians policymakers patients caregivers Executives and advocates who are fed up with the status quo and have a desire to change it. We take you behind the scenes with people across America that are putting patients first and restoring trust in American health care. One of the scourges of our society, especially from a healthcare standpoint, is addiction. Americans love the old saying, better life through chemistry, and too many times that is choosing the wrong chemistry to improve their lives. Addiction, it it affects so many different people in so many different ways, and you know, shame on evolution for giving us the ability to become addicted to so many different things throughout the course of our life. Today's episode, we're focusing on alcohol addiction. Alcohol is one of those things that changes our brain chemistry, does a lot of different things to us. So to help us through this conversation and to to his expertise on this episode of Healthcare Americana, please welcome Dr. Joshua Lee, Chief Clinical Advisor at Orr Health and Professor, Department of Population Health, Department of Medicine at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. Dr. Lee, thank you for joining us here on Healthcare Americana to talk addiction.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. Great to be here.
1: Now, we can be addicted to all kinds of different things as human beings. Is that an accurate statement?
2: Yeah, we can do things over and over. And then the the real kind of border is doing things that harm us over and over. That's more where we're talking about addiction.
1: And I'm like, you can be addicted to social media. You can be addicted to your phone. We see that a lot. You can be addicted to chemicals, alcohol, drugs, all kinds of different things. Give me kind of a cursory background of what addiction means to you in the medical space.
2: Yeah, so I run a fellowship in addiction medicine, and I work with a company, OR, that is trying to help people with alcohol uh, and uh, treat patients individually uh, in New York City. Um, that's opiate, alcohol, and smoking. Those are the three chief conditions that I'm focused on, and that's primarily because those are the where we have the best treatments, the best medications the most kind of evidence base that's stacked up and where we know what we're doing. It's tougher with stimulant addiction, other behavioral addictions. This can cross over to eating disorders, which is extremely complicated. I don't treat that, but that's where that's kind of the fringe of, of kind of what I do, which is helping people with some type of compulsive disorder where the alcohol can't be stopped. They would like to stop it. And despite Kind of their conscious knowledge that it would be better for them not to drink, they're unable to, and that's that's the definition of addiction and it kind of repeated use of something that's harming you or repeated use despite harms that are obvious to you and other people. Uh, and then, as you say, you could you could fit a lot of activities, behaviors, or substances into that. Keep doing this despite harm. Clearly, alcohol is one of those, and it's one of the most common reasons people seek help for, die prematurely, uh, get liver transplants, uh, crash their cars, all the other uh, societal and individual kind of ill effects of alcohol. And yet a lot of us use it and try and use it responsibly, arguably healthily. You can have that debate, too, whether any alcohol is healthy metabolically, a little bit, say, the Mediterranean diet, red wine with dinner. Um, There's a lot of good new evidence that that probably isn't. The case like any alcohol is mostly helping you accrue harm, and yet uh, I personally I, I use alcohol so there's something to be gained from it still. And this is despite what I do for work and uh, my you know knowledge as a physician. Still enjoy using alcohol, hopefully in moderation, because it's such a age-old substance, and our whole kind of society is built around it in many ways. It's key to fine dining, all that kind of stuff. And there's a lot of reasons you can still enjoy it and not consider yourself addicted. So it's an interesting subject to talk about from that kind of matter. And then what is addiction medicine? That to me is kind of practically what can we tell all the doctors at the med school, uh, in your family practice residency, in the emergency room, and all sorts of different settings? Uh, what, How can we help our patients in that next patient encounter, what can we do that's practical, safe, effective? And there's a lot, again, for smoking, opiates, and alcohol. And the impetus of addiction medicine as a, a relatively new board-certified subspecialty is that we can be experts in it, but that we, we can all take part and do it. And that's a little different than the tradition of addiction psychiatry, which was a pretty narrow A set of fellowships and not too many experts graduated per year and that was the original kind of home of addiction treatment like in a medical school or across your county medical society of who was treating addiction it came from psychiatry and then a a narrow band of people within psychiatry addiction psychiatrists so nothing against addiction psychiatry but it wasn't inclusive of all these other specialties doctors settings general practice settings, especially where we could be doing a ton uh, about somebody's alcohol use. They may never get to the specialty drug and alcohol treatment center uh, down the road or one county over, but right here and now in the ED or in the family practice office, we could start doing something about that. And that's really what addiction medicine is.
1: I appreciate the background and and there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of key points there that I want to see if we can revisit. You know, I appreciate the fact that you're like, look, I enjoy drinks too. Like you're not coming in here and just saying, "Thou shall not drink." Go live the the, uh, the saltine and and uh, boring cracker kind of cookie cutter lifestyle over here. I, I think you failed to mention that um, you know in a social setting. I'm sure alcohol has been responsible for a lot of marriages and a lot of courage. You know, false courage and sometimes, but a lot of bad things that happen as well. And I've always been fascinated because. I think alcohol is one of those things where people will freely express, you know, there is a dependency on it, but people shy away from the word addiction. In your mind, is there any difference between being dependent on a chemical versus being addicted to that chemical?
2: Yes, and that we can be physically dependent on medication, say, that we can't just stop and that there's a lot of medications that are like that. Rebound hypertension, I can't go off my antidepressant all of a sudden, or I, I am kind of physically tolerant to a benzodiazepine, say, I can't just stop it. But if I'm taking it as prescribed, that generally doesn't meet the criteria for addiction. So there is a difference between physiologic dependence and kind of maladaptive, again, kind of compulsively harmful behaviors. And that's where that same benzodiazepine prescription can, can become a benzodiazepine use disorder when people are taking it, not a prescribed, overusing it you know, doctor shopping, getting it from their cousin, et cetera. And, and benzodiazepine use disorders are pretty common and, and tough to treat and, and one, of the, one of the conditions we deal with. But most people taking uh, benzodiazepine prescribed by their physician are not addicted to it. So there is, there is an important distinction, even though some of those people are physically dependent on it and would have ill effects if they abruptly stopped it. There'd be some type of withdrawal or rebound effect.
1: Got it, got it. Yeah, I appreciate the clarity on that one because in my mind, I'm like, you know, there's a lot of, in medicine, there's a lot of terms that are used almost interchangeably, and it's like, well, that's not exactly what that means from a scientific standpoint, although the general population might think of it in some other different manners. I I think the bottom line is that when when it comes to addiction, the biggest thing that comes across my mind is why? You know, why are addictions formed? I know everybody's completely different, and You know, I'd I'd be curious about your opinion if some people are more naturally susceptible to becoming addicted to chemicals or whatever it is than others. But the question is, you know, why? Why is it that we put ourselves into these situations where we're triggered and like that's where we need the drink, right? Or that's where we need to have this thing. What is happening just within our brains from what you see that makes us act that way?
2: Yeah, if you compare us to like other other species other mammals uh and then ourselves and think about you mentioned evolution up front just what what it takes to survive on this earth and you got to find food you got to reproduce uh in terms of propagating the species uh, you want to reduce stress, uh, which most species and us perceive as like unpleasant and harmful. And so our brains are wired to promote behaviors that are healthy, uh, like um, finding food, remembering where food is, uh, gathering and producing food in new ways that are more productive than they were last year. That all our our brain will recognize that as good, and in the moment and long term kind of reward us or, or send us feedback that, you know, the squirrel found the nut. That was, that was a good thing for the squirrel's day and did it, and it helps us learn. So you, you want to be praised. You want to get paid for your success. There's reasons we work hard and do long-term planning and that has to do with rewards and eventual payoffs. That same reward system deep in our brain momentarily can be kind of hijacked by drugs and alcohol that wasn't necessarily in the landscape we um, were born into but if we discover it uh, our brain really 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 likes it out of proportion to other things we're experiencing kind of day to day and then you know again think of like rat models where we have really good animal models for addiction because you can in a lab get an animal hooked on substance a cocaine, methamphetamine, alcohol, nicotine, and it'll prefer that and hit the lever you know in opposition to other stuff it used to like like food, water, etc. and it's just random. You know why why was that one molecule that you gave the rat that much more attractive to the rat? It just hit the right buttons. And most things that you would try off the shelf in a pharmacy would not do that, but some things do. And then you've got kind of a winner, so to speak, uh, in terms of a a compound with addiction potential. And then so through trial and error over eons, alcohol, that keeps doing it to people, uh, nicotine, caffeine, um, et cetera, et cetera. You could even get into like, overly sugary, fatty, salty foods, like, well, there's a reason that junk food is, is junky. That's more like desirable in the moment to a lot of consumers, even though that's not necessarily good for you or good food. So it's just kind of chance and it's random how we kind of evolved on earth and, and how we experiencing our environment. But it, I think um, the usual teaching is that it came from a survival mechanism, which is how would you learn what is good for you through kind of experience, touching, feeling, tasting, your brain had to have some way of kind of reinforcing what it was going to take to keep going, thrive, survive. And then in the case of addiction and something like alcohol, uh, it just does a bit too much. And uh, for some of us, we are programmed to like it too much. So there is genetic susceptibility variations. We, d- we don't have it down to like, this is the alcohol gene. There's probably hundreds of candidate and it's a complex kind of epigenetic story. But for sure, if you, for instance, have a family history of severe alcohol use disorder in first degree relatives, you're more at risk for that yourself. Uh, And then uh, environment, like when did you experience alcohol for the first time? And what was the context? And was it normalized to drink heavily when you were an emerging adult versus later in life when you just became a football fan, and now, yeah, I go to these tailgates, and people drink a lot, but, you know, like, that was new to me, so I don't, you know, sometimes I'm into it, sometimes I'm not, versus I have been tailgating my whole life. I was raised as a seven-year-old, you know, to chug beer at a tailgate. That's that's very different, you know, probably impacts on that person long term, even if genetically those people are exactly the same. So there's there's the whole, you know, chicken or egg and, and genes versus environment to talk about, but, Alcohol is so prevalent that everyone eventually is usually, you know, in a country like the United States, exposed to it. Um, but uh, later versus early exposure, and then kind of other other, you know, social pressures and and context probably also matters a lot in terms of what people develop and and stick with, and then what becomes a problem for for person A versus person B.
1: And so tracking that through. So extend your example, right? They they're used to going to tailgates. They're used to seeing all this. Do they finally wake up one day and just be like I can't go on feeling like this after a hard night and they're just like I need some help what do I do
2: Yeah that that'll happen and that's when you'll you'll get people into treatment or there's a crisis you know there's kind of a bottom Uh, Or there's, um, you know, a a partner or a family or work uh, or other pressures to to do something about it, even though you've been reluctant up till then. So there's all sorts of ways people can decide it's time to quit, to seek treatment, to check into a hospital, uh, you know, whatever it is to get um, treatment started. It could also be. I would like to do something I haven't been able to. I think I drink too much. I want to. It's something I want to talk about now with my healthcare provider and whatever the next you know encounter is. And hopefully that's a way uh, to you know get good advice and help. And then interestingly, um, alcohol another good example. A lot of people never get help. They don't all die of drinking or or suffer throughout their older age um, and last decades with the drinking problem. People can naturally make choices. We probably all have a friend who used to smoke cigarettes and then quit and didn't do it with any fancy, uh, you know, Chantix plus a patch plus the gum and an app, uh, all of which is available and may boost your chances for quitting smoking. But they did it on their own. They did it kind of when they were sick of it, and they did it for their own reasons. And that's not an unusual story, nor with alcohol, where people have have just kind of toned it down as they got older. And they got, you know, they got tired of being tired, that kind of sloganeering. But it, it does happen. It will happen at greater numbers and with higher probability if people are getting the interventions we have. Uh, but it's not to say people can't kind of self-cure or sometimes we say it burns out. It's not necessarily a, um, you know, a forever state once you're in it. But it is, it is, the whole problem with the disorder is it's hard to change it yourself. That's one of the... You know criteria's and and what people really struggle with.
1: Yeah, I think it's fascinating, and I've always heard and this could be just an old wives' tale that your body can basically flush any chemical or anything out in about seventy two hours, but it's your brain that sticks with it. It's that memory of that experience. It's that kind of recalls it or triggers it. Yep. And that's what that's what people really struggle with. It's that psychological. It's what's between our ears that is really recalling everything back there and saying. Oh, usually when I used to step outside and sit out back, that's when I had that cigarette or after after work, when I got the kids to bed, like that's when I poured that glass of wine. It's like the habit, I guess, is is the weird part. And habits are so deeply ingrained that we can do them without even thinking about it. That's where I just find it so fascinating because you got this triggered, you got the action, you got some kind of reward there. Even if that reward is so detrimental to our physical well-being, our brain still processes it just like that cycle.
2: Yeah, for sure, and you know, in an instant, that sip of alcohol is not necessarily harmful, and so your brain is free to experiencing it as fun, or I'm high, or I feel no pain, I'm relaxed, my anxiety went away, I feel more outgoing—all the reasons that people talk about, you know, why they like um, drinking, for instance. And again, back to like evolution and how our brains are set up. So then you learn that. That rewarding first impulse becomes um, a kind of learning network, and and as you say, you can remember it then. You can remember how you got into it, how you accessed it, where you go to get it, you know. And 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 it would make sense that we would want to repeat uh, pleasurable experiences, you know, over and over. Um, it's only later that it's like, oh yeah, but that much alcohol is hurting my liver. That much alcohol means I can't lose weight. I keep driving despite all that alcohol and you your brain has to work a little harder to say that's not rewarding because in the immediate aftermath of a drink you can still experience the reward and that makes sense that your brain would want to keep doing it.
1: It's that reward, right? That like we keep saying, it's like that's the big thing. But it's a slow boil. You don't automatically recognize that your liver's rotting away or that your relationships are crumbling around you. It's that slow boil. It's the frog in the frog in the pot of water type of effect on it. Now, most of your work is at NYU Grossman School of Medicine, and you do, as we said in our introduction, serve as a chief clinical advisor at Or Health. Tell us a little bit about Or Health because, you know, from my standpoint, it looks like, yes, we're, at, we're helping people with addiction, but we're helping with more of a medically assisted treatment option for alcohol addiction. Give us a little bit of background into Orr Health and your work there.
2: Yeah, I was sitting around um, early COVID as just uh, someone who treats and researches addiction and alcohol and the medication naltrexone and wound up getting into contact with uh, Jonathan. Jonathan is the founder CEO of Or, and he had experienced alcohol problems and had been on naltrexone and it had been a real game changer for him. And he was a entrepreneur and health executive. So he was in a great position to start a company which is now or or health. And that was to really kind of bring naltrexone in a generic once a day, pretty cheap pill to the masses. Uh, and the opportunity is that there's not enough of me's or 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 folks that have heard this podcast and then treat patients differently. There's not enough docs prescribing what we know works for smoking opiates and alcohol. And that is something I have spent my career, you know, I'll write a paper that says, hey, colleagues, let's prescribe more, you know, to help people quit. Uh, and And who knows if anyone reads that paper, but that's like academic medicine for you. I was not a PR professional. I was not working on a national, you know, campaign to get people on more treatment. It's just like outside of my own little individual narrow neighborhood. But the idea with OR is that, well, we'll do it. We'll take that as an opportunity. We'll um, advertise on the radio. We'll do Google search ads. We'll, we'll find the patient somewhere or the individual who is struggling with alcohol. It could be a wide spectrum of, you know, really severely ill to know I should do something about it, but just haven't been able to, all of whom are probably eligible for a trial of naltrexone to help tamp down the drinking, suppress cravings, uh, help them drink not at all or drink less, Uh, is a generic non-controlled substance. Naltrexone is an opiate blocker at the mu-opiate receptor in our brain. So it's a brain drug, but that somehow works with a lot of people with an alcohol use disorder, helps them not find alcohol as rewarding in the moment, and then long-term as a kind of relapse prevention, maintenance medication. And it's something you could put into, you know, this new batch of companies that do kind of direct-to-consumer pharmaceuticals, like ED drugs, like hair loss, like uh, all the stuff you've gotten a pop-up ad for, in terms of a medication that is not, that ad is not from your local doctor or someone you already have a relationship with. It's from a company that is going to, you know, essentially do a kind of out-of-pocket uh, medical telemedicine treatment episode, and in the mail you're going to get a prescription medication. So that's what is doing, and it's working. <laughs> we're, we're, uh, we're not setting the world on fire, if you've never heard of us, um, stuff like that, but um, we've found it a pretty solid month-to-month you know, like growing and um, state-by-state um, finding we're able to help a great many people at this point in a simple and, you know, quite streamlined business in terms of targeting one condition with one medication. So we're not trying to be a comprehensive care solution. We can't send you to rehab, we can't switch you to the third medication. So it's really quite, you know, simple, but that's what we have started with, at least, and that's what's uh, been working for us so far.
1: Dr. Lee, we're going to take a quick break here from our sponsor, Freedom Doc, and we'll continue the episode after this quick message. Physician burnout is a killer. It is driving our best and brightest out of medicine. The only solution to burnout is to be your own boss. The easiest way to be your own boss is join the Freedom Doc Physician Network. Freedom Doc is a unified brand that will fully finance your practice so that you can enjoy a healthier lifestyle, take better care of patients, and spend more time with your family. You focus on patients. Freedom Doc focuses on your business. So if you're ready to be your own boss, visit our website, freedomdoc.care.com to learn more and schedule a consultation with one of our experts, Freedom Doc Accessible Concierge Healthcare. We are back with Dr. Joshua Lee, Chief Clinical Advisor at Orr Health, an alcohol addiction company. And he's also a professor in the Department of Population Health and Department of Medicine at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. Dr. Lee, welcome back to Healthcare Americana. You're obviously a very busy man with teaching, patients, advisory, you know, I got to ask, like when you started your career out and you're like, I want to go to medical school, was addiction medicine, and, and you're, you're a, a, a primary care physician by, by training, was addiction medicine something that you're like, I know I want to go there? Or did that calling come somewhere later?
2: Yeah, no, It was really just a journey uh, professionally where as I got to each stage of you start med school, you got a residency, you look for fellowship or your first job. And what are you going to do in that job, et cetera, et cetera. I just got more and more exposure and kind of opportunity. And it was it was of interest. It was more like when I the first day of med school, I couldn't have told you any of this was going to happen. I did not grow up thinking I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon, and then I went into orthopedics, and nothing like that. Um, I um, was interested in, though, kind of public health, policy, reading and writing. Uh, That kind of steered me towards academics versus, say, just like full-time private practice. In med school, I was interested in psychiatry. I liked that a lot, and uh, general medicine, uh, family practice as well. So I was thinking kind of GP or psychiatry versus, say, surgery, ED obstetrics uh and then in uh, I I did a primary care track internal medicine residency and that of course is focused more on outpatient medicine it also has these blocks at the one I did at NYU on epidemiology health policy um and um what we called psychosocial medicine but there was quite a bit of attention there to addiction Treating addiction, smoking, opiates, alcohol, but there was no such field as addiction medicine, but you could get a credential after residency, a certificate essentially from the American Society of Addiction Medicine. So there was a national organization, there was kind of people I was getting to know that were internists or family medicine, but they worked in the addiction space. Uh, As we were saying up front, formerly mostly a psychiatry-driven field, but you could work at a methadone clinic if you were a family doc, say. And then in fellowship, I started a kind of research-focused fellowship, but I was thinking about uh, hepatitis C, and I was working a lot in the New York City jails at that time. And in jail medicine, uh, there's chronic disease, there's acute injuries and other problems, there's a lot of mental health burden, uh, and there's a ton of addiction. And opiate addiction in New York City, in particular, along with stimulants, uh, is something we thought about a lot on the jail side. Uh, and then as faculty, I was kind of hired to build out more addiction at my institution. And on the research side, started doing clinical trials that were focused on opiate and alcohol addiction with medications. Exactly kind of what we're talking about today. And and that. I liked it and I wanted to do more of it. I grew with it and it became a career. It could have, you know, I think I could have gone in many different ways, but that's just how it settled out. And then the advisory and helping a company grow that's completely new to me. I'm just learning as we go. I'm not myself a startup person or a, a biotech entrepreneur. I'm not an entrepreneur in the healthcare or kind of behavioral health addiction space. I've been very much kind of traditional sitting there in my office at NYU. Uh, and working at Bellevue Hospital. But it's been super exciting to do a little of that in the last 10, 15 years with a couple companies. And then OR is the deepest involvement I've had. And it's the most practical. We know we got a solution. It's not for everyone. It's not going to work long-term for everyone, but everyone should give this a shot. There's a lot of area under the curve in terms of like helping people along the way with oral naltrexone and making that kind of as approachable, simple, private, affordable as possible has been a lot of fun. You know, that's kind of what I see as lacking in a lot of our healthcare space. Like, why can't we just like keep the essentials, but uh, get away with like, it's going to take you three hours to go to the doctor, or you may not get at your next appointment for another six months, all this kind of stuff we actually experience as healthcare, you know, patients and consumers, um, which are super annoying, and it takes a lot of time, and you got to be really on the ball scheduling all your own stuff at this point you know, as the patient, but with this approach, it's like, all right, this is the problem. This is the solution. Like this is this part, at least uh, we're going to push the button and we're going to start that. And it doesn't stop till you think it's not working.
1: Absolutely. And those of us in the direct care world are sitting there nodding our heads to what you just said. Like, yeah, okay. That is a completely, you know, what you just laid out of, I can't get an appointment for three weeks or six months, whatever that is doesn't exist in our world, which thank goodness. That's why we're here but not enough people know about it so a lot of people struggle by themselves to address medical issues i want to ask you know about stigmas with addiction care and really the treatments that go along with them fentanyl's huge right now you know people i think people have this thought that you know if i need help i don't want the cure to be worse than my disease right now i don't want to fight my addiction to x with y and then y turns out to be worse for me in the long run what is your message to people who talk to you about this and you say, yeah, we use, we use naltrexone, and they're like, ooh, wait, I don't, I don't want to go on some other medication because I'm really scared about what that medication could do to me, and is that actually worse than my alcoholism?
2: Yeah, it, it's a live – like you really got to have time to talk patients through that. With like an app-based approach, we may not have that opportunity, and we may then miss – People who are skeptical of taking a pharmaceutical product, um, which they may kind of package as, you know, part of the overall problem they're having. Um, And they're thinking more self-help or more kind of natural living. Um, And that's not what, you know, the OR app is going to do. It's not what I do in my practice generally. But if I have time to talk to a patient about that, you know, try and give them data, education. It's all a cost benefit. Calculation they'll have to do for themselves. We try and reassure people that, yeah, these are prescription medications. They're safe. They are not going to give you cancer, dementia, heart disease. Like they don't have, we've been using most of these for decades. We think they have a good safety profile. Um, there are some side effects. Here they are, like you might have a little bit of tummy trouble or, or um, kind of loss appetite and, and flu-like symptoms when you first start an altreone, and we'll, we'll want you to know that and talk about it up front. But we think it works. I'm not here kind of selling you snake oil. The reason I'm talking about these particular treatments are we think we have, you know, compelling experience, um, patients before you uh programs where peop- other people are doing the same stuff and it's working for them and then of course clinical trials from wherever uh that indicate this is something we should be spending our time on uh and then do you still want to talk about it you know that's not going to convince everybody the irony can be something like um you know one really interesting part of what we do now is uh vaping so e-cigarettes not talking about um, cannabis i'm talking about nicotine and that's gotten a lot of negative attention, obviously, when middle schools have a lot of kids running around vaping. Uh, for an adult smoker, it does look like a really successful way to smoke less or to quit smoking. It's not FDA approved as such in the United States. It is uh, more; It has more of an approval status in the UK and parts of Europe. But I'll talk to my patients about vaping. And they'll have those same questions like I don't know it's like what's in that fluid it was made in China like I've I've read it can really mess you up and you're talking to someone that's smoking two packs a day (laughs) you're like what 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 do you think you're getting out of two packs a day of cigarette you know like you're tying yourself to a you know like an exhaust pipe every day of your life that's not good for you you know you know that and so okay maybe the vaping maybe we got to talk about the gum or the patch or the Chantix but you know just try and ground it in What's happening to you now is really not good for your health. We have these healthier choices and you try and present multiple options, of course, and this is like motivational interviewing. And then just see, you know, what the patient is kind of willing to consider able to, you know, sign up for and you don't get super pushy and you're not disappointed when people don't choose what you think is tier one and they go for tier four, like, okay, well, we'll come back to that discussion. Next time we talk. Um, uh, that kind of thing. So, I mean, that's how I deal with it in a, in a real-time, like, patient interview in my office. Um, and uh, and it's, it's what you would like to sit there and talk about with people uh, for a long time. Um, and you don't always have time, of course. And then, and then many people just are never getting to the point where they're talking to a medical professional at, at that level. Um, and, and that's another, you know, kind of real gap that people just don't get any teaching ever. Uh, about this stuff And they go through it You know Largely alone So
1: Or health App based Yep Who are your main Who are your main customers Who, do, who actually pays your bills
2: uh, So it's consumers So it's It's folks Driving their car That hear a radio ad It's people that were looking For now, naltrexone Or alcohol treatment Or do I have an alcohol problem Like Google ad Ad buys uh, keyword searches stuff and um and then they so they're just individuals they've got to be adults and you can't have some contraindications chiefly uh being on opiate medications so if you have an opiate use disorder or if you're on opiates for pain you cannot take naltrexone that's a blocker it's the opposite it'll counteract and if you're dependent on opiates could cause opiate withdrawal but in terms of our customer base i think it is majority women and it is um You know, typically people kind of age 25 to 45. That's kind of the key demographic. Um, The women versus men is interesting. Uh, Probably nationally, men still have a higher burden and and drink more in terms of consumption and then the prevalence of alcohol use disorder. But one of our, um, and we've known this uh, really to kick in since COVID, drinking rates and, and drinking problems liver transplants, deaths related to alcohol among women have really been accelerating faster than in men. And that's quite troubling uh, as as traditionally in the United States in our culture, women drink less, men drink more. That's more normalizing, but it's producing a lot of uh, negative consequences uh, for women.
1: I find that fascinating because, you know, my last question for you on our episode is, you know, looking at the nation, we're a very large, very diverse population, whether it's socioeconomic, racial, you name it, we've got different people from all walks of life around here. I was gonna ask, do you see any communities really struggling with addiction where they are either unable to access help or unwilling to go seek out help? And I guess it's a positive that, you know, the the female population out there aren't just quiet sufferers, that they are taking steps to approach or and say, hey, look, I need some help here, and I really didn't know who to ask before or never really sought it out or whatever the rationality is. So I, I'm just very curious what type of patterns you see amongst the U.S. population.
2: Yeah, I mean, it depends on the substance, and, and it, it does serve some regional variation, some variation within ethnicity, cultural background. For instance, like lower income still has higher rates of smoking and some of the worst alcohol related um, statistics are in Native American indigenous populations. And the prescription pill problem from the 90s and 2000s was more suburban than it was urban, for instance. Uh, but now. Fentanyl is everywhere. Alcohol is obviously everywhere. There's no lack of nicotine and smoking products. And. Um, if anything, I think in my career, especially thinking about opiates um, and how there was a pill problem like at this high school, but then this one didn't have it, and then and then this one was closer to like inner city Philadelphia, and there was some heroin there. It's kind of all over now, and I'm originally from Tennessee, and like there, there was no heroin in Tennessee, and there certainly wasn't um, uh, anything like fentanyl, which is now contaminating most heroin in the United States. But pretty much in any county, rural, suburban, urban in a state like Tennessee, there's now the availability of heroin, heroin slash fentanyl, you know, illegally, illicitly manufactured and, and, and distributed fentanyl and fentanyl-like analogs. And that's driving the opiate overdose rates that we're, that we're dealing with uh, year in, year out. It's become kind of a fentanyl epidemic. And that, that's like totally new, totally different. And we wouldn't have necessarily predicted that 30 years ago based on like Tennessee versus Rhode Island, say. But now they, they've started to look more and more similar, kind of county by county and state by state, red versus blue, north versus south, east, west. Um, and, uh, and that just means, you know, in, in a sense, like culture and, and people's experiences gotten more similar than different. You know, again, back to like, well, we're all, we grow up on our phones and we watch the same TV and we go to the same chain restaurants. And it's not hard to believe then that like whatever was working in Iowa will quickly get exported to, uh, you know, Nebraska and then down to Georgia. And um, in terms of the illegal drug markets, that seems to be the case, especially with, with opiates. You see more. Disparity and dis- dissimilarity with stimulants, methamphetamine versus cocaine, crack cocaine versus powder um, from from different parts of the country. That does not seem to be kind of equally available or used in the same way everywhere. But I would say with alcohol and adults and then um, teens at risk and then emerging adults like college age and, and uh, kids just entering the workforce, people generally have the same stuff going on state by state with alcohol.
1: It's all very fascinating, so appreciate uh, all your work and your career that you've done to help people find the the treatment that they need. Dr. Joshua Lee, Chief Clinical Advisor at Orr Health, as well as Professor in the Department of Population, Health, and Medicine at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. Dr. Lee, pleasure talking to you today. Appreciate you coming on to Healthcare Americana.
2: Really enjoyed it. Thanks for your time.
1: That's going to do it for this episode of Healthcare Americana, if you haven't yet Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out online at healthcareamericana.com to catch previous episodes, subscribe to our mailing list, and visit our online store. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening.
0: Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all of our episodes. Visit the shop and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced and managed by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro. Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom Health Works and Freedom Doc. If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit FMMA.org.
1: Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry, and we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.